Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 23 as we continue to work through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's found on page 828. And I want to start this morning with a few silly scenarios that I promise will be appropriate later. Let me give you three somewhat silly scenarios. Person says, excuse me, and then punches you in the face. And you say, what? why'd you punch me in the face? And they say, no, no, no. It's okay. I said, excuse me. Second scenario, I warned you ahead of time. These were going to be slightly silly. Second scenario, you get punched in the face again. And the person says, I'm sorry. And then punches you in the face again. And you say to them, hey, I think you did that on purpose. And they said, yes, yes, yes. But I said I was sorry. And then they punch you in the face again. Third scenario. Guess what? You get punched in the face. And you try to tell someone else this time. You're like, look, that guy punched me in the face. And the other person you talk to says, no, 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 no. That guy could never have done it. He gives way too much to charity. So it's impossible that he would punch you in the face. These three slightly silly scenarios of getting punched in the face, I promise will correspond to our text later. But as we started last week in Matthew chapter 23, We're going to continue on in a similar thing of seeing Jesus condemn the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the leaders of his time. And each of those many scenarios is going to correspond with a different flavor of hypocrisy that we're going to see in our text. So with the first one, the idea of saying, it's okay that I punched you in the face because I was polite and said, excuse me, is a bit of hypocrisy. Recognizing that politeness is not a loophole for hurting people. In the second example, the person did the right thing of saying they were sorry, but continued to do the larger harm of punching people in the face. In the third example, the person appears a good person because they give to charity, but in their actual interactions with people, they are punching them in the face. What ties the three sections of our text today is this idea of hypocritical holiness. And as we look at Jesus' condemnation 
of the religious leaders of his time, we need to evaluate where we might share in their hypocrisy. And as with all that Jesus has done in this section of Matthew, it is again and again a call to repent and believe. And to not follow the hypocritical holiness of the Pharisees, but to follow Jesus with integrity and true holiness. So let's look, beginning verse 16. We're going to see the hypocrisy of loopholes. Now before we get into these verses specifically, I want to talk a little bit about swearing an oath, because that's central to our first section here. By the way, if you want to see a complimentary passage, you can read Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. But broadly speaking, in that context, an oath was designed to encourage truthfulness or to make truthfulness the more solemn and sure. So in our culture, we have phrases like, I swear on my mother's grave. Or in the courtroom, we place our hand on the Bible and we are sworn in and say, so help me God. But what do hypocrites do? They use what was meant to affirm the truth to get away with lying. So let's look now, beginning verses 16 and 17. Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Now I'm going to move a little quicker through these two verses because the next verses have a similar pattern and talk to similar issues. But look at where Jesus begins this section. Again, referring to the Pharisees as blind guides. They claim to lead God's people, but they are blind, unable to lead the people. But we see that they are blind guides in how they made rules about making oaths. So we see here, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. And Jesus' response is that they are blind fools. Because, he says, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold Sacred. Jesus is pointing out there's no real difference between the two objects, meaning that there is no real difference that would make one oath binding and another oath not binding. Again, let's take one of our cultural phrases I swear on my mother's grave. There's no difference between that and saying, I swear on the granite of my mother's grave. But Jesus repeats their beginning in verse 18. Again, a similar pattern. Let's look at that as we move on. Verse 18, And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? 
Again, a lot of similarities here in the next example. If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. Again, Jesus points out there is no real difference between the two. Verse 19, you blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? If you say you can meet me at the store at 2 p.m., you don't have to show up. But if you say you're going to meet me at the store at 2.05 p.m., then you must show up. Let me talk about lawyers for a second here. A good lawyer uses language and knowledge of the laws to find the truth. A good lawyer uses language and knowledge of the laws to prosecute the guilty and acquit the innocent. But there is also a way that we all have some experience with, even if it's just in movies, in which people pay lots of money to lawyers to find loopholes and technicalities so they can do whatever they want. These verses scream, bad lawyer. And there's historical evidence that these types of differentiations were used, were meant to fight the abuses of oaths by the people, but in fact, they just became covers for deception and lies. But what does our hypocritical heart want to do? We want to take the rules and we want to find the loopholes and the technicalities for the sins that we already want to do. The pedantic technicalities meant to ensure truthfulness become a haven for lies and broken promises. You know the rules to the game so well it allows you to legally cheat. You know, sometimes we speak of it this way, that Jesus is calling us to a bigger thing, to understand the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. Now here I'm not necessarily talking about a legal context, but we have rules, and yes, maybe you didn't technically break a rule, but what was the larger point of the rule all along? Right, we say, don't hit your sister. And what does the kid do? He waves his hand in the face of his sicker and technically does not make contact. But we know he has entirely missed the point of the rule. The rule, the point of the rule is don't harass or harm your sibling. Again, to try to draw it into our own context... How often, honestly, do we ask, what can I get away with, as opposed to how can I follow God's word? And the corrective that Jesus is going to give us in the next verses, the corrective to the amazing lawyerly skill that we have to manipulate what the Bible says so we can do what we want, is that Jesus is going to connect that every oath, regardless of what it is sworn upon, is connected to God himself. 
Let's look at verses 20 to 22. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. If you swear by the temple, as was done back then, you are making an oath to the God of that temple. If you swear on God's chair, then you are making an oath before the Lord whose chair you're talking about. And it's not explicitly said here, but I think we can see clearly Jesus' point that if you're making an oath before the Lord, you'd better keep it. God is not interested in your amazing ability to find loopholes and technicalities. God wants you to tell the truth and keep your promises. So what does this look like? What does this type of integrity look like in our lives? One thought on this is is don't make flippant or meaningless promises. You know, as we were discussing the text this week, Pastor Dave made the connection to swearing and the idea of profanity. And the base idea of profanity is to make a sacred thing common. And you see this in how much of what we would call profanity is connected to language about God. We not only profane God's name when we invoke it in promises we never intend to keep, we also profane God's name when claiming to follow him when we make flippant and meaningless promises to others. When we are not committed to the promises we make, we ruin the trust of others. And in that way, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, but yet we never keep our word, what does that say about the God we claim to follow? Secondly, and here I drop back to what I mentioned earlier, the complimentary passage in Matthew chapter 5. There Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Or the familiar words of James chapter 5, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You don't need to draw attention to yourself by using flowery language of promises like oaths. Just say yes or no and commit to keeping your promise. Don't tell me how much you're going to keep your promise. Just make your promise and keep it. And thirdly, just just at a very basic level, tell the truth. But you need to think about it the way that Jesus is thinking about it. We tell the truth because we're speaking in front of God. Right? And when you speak in front of God, you need to speak the truth. Let's go to the next flavor of hypocrisy here. 
in verses 23 and 24, and we're going to see this hypocrisy of priorities. Follow along as I read. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. In Old Testament law, Israelites were to give 10% to the temple as an offering to the Lord and to provide for the Levites who did not own land. But rather they served in the temple and in the towns among the tribes of Israel. And if you want to learn more about that, you can read Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, and Deuteronomy 12 and 14. Sometimes today we still use this language of tithe as sort of a rule of thumb for giving an offering. But different than the way we commonly use it today, a tithe back then was not just 10% of your salary. Now remember that for all of Israel's biblical history, it is predominantly an agrarian society with farming and animals. So we see in some of these texts on tithing, we see commands to crop, we see commands to tithe your crops and animals. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 14, there are commands about tithing your wine and your oil. So there was historically debates as to how, how far the law of tithing should extend. And we see here the religious strictness of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders that they tithe their mint and dill and cumin. I want you to go home today after church. I want you to open up your spice drawer, find your bottle of cumin, and attempt to figure out how much is 10% and bring it to church next week. a lot of work for not a large amount. But what I want you to see in that is a level of meticulousness following the law to the letter. So what's the problem? I thought we were supposed to follow God's word. The problem was not necessarily that they tithed their spices. It's a little more nuanced than that. What is the problem? The problem is they had the wrong priorities. They spent, again, think of the time it's going to take to get 10% of your spices. That's time consuming. But look back, verse 23. You tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. They spent all their time with their spices, and they missed some of the biggest ideas in your Bible of what it means to be a follower of God. They were so focused on the minute details of their tithe 
that they weren't people who loved justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You know, the Bible even tells us that these things are important to God. We think of places like Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. They were so focused on things that get barely a mention in your Bible that they missed the call that runs throughout the scriptures. But this is more than just Jesus' version of don't sweat the small stuff. Notice what he says. These you ought to have done without neglecting others. A person of integrity does both. They are obedient in the small details, and they are obedient in the large details. But these hypocrites think they will be made righteous by their spice tithing, while at the same time rejecting God's call to justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And Jesus gives us a ridiculous picture to show how ridiculous they are. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. There it is again. They're blind guides. They claim to lead God's people to God's truth, but they are blind to it. And their hypocrisy is as ridiculous as straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So why gnat and camel? Thank you for asking. Both of these would have been considered unclean. Right? So you weren't supposed to eat either of them. And in that way, they can represent the smaller and the larger sins. And if you see a gnat in your soup, you should not eat it. But think about the picture. The pictures of someone meticulously fishing out the gnat. It's like when you crack an egg and there is that tiny piece of shell. We've all been there. (laughs) Spending all of your time to get that tiny gnat, and then you just swallow the camel hole. By the way, the camel, one of the largest land animals that people in that part of the world would have known. So the point is how different in size. You strain the gnat, You ignore the camel. And when we view hypocrisy from God's view, our hypocrisy is just as ridiculous. To focus on the smallest of details only to ignore the most important issues. Shaming someone for not calculating out exactly 10% for their tithe but at the same time being unjust, unmerciful, and unfaithful. Jesus tells us to do both. The life of integrity is a life that is obedient in the small details and the large issues of life. You can give exactly 
10% down to the penny as an offering. But if you've never truly repented of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus Christ, what was the point? You can faithfully attend every Bible study and every church event, but yet be mean and completely faithless to the people around you. You can be so meticulous in Christian practices while at the same time being completely unmerciful to others. But let's be honest, as difficult as it would be to calculate 10% of your spices, in one sense that is much easier than living a life of justice mercy, and faithfulness. Friends, flee from that life of hypocrisy. Be a person of integrity who lives that life of justice and mercy and faithfulness and yes, does follow Jesus even in the smallest details of your life. Let's turn to the last section of our text today. Third flavor of hypocrisy. And that is the hypocrisy of appearances. Let's first look, verses 25 to 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. I want you to think about this as actually looking clean as opposed to actually being clean. You go to get a drink of water, you grab a cup off the counter, and just as you're about to put some water in it to drink, you look inside and it's filled with rotten milk from three days ago. We all know, we've all seen this, something can look clean on the outside, but what's on the inside truly matters. People can project themselves as good Christian people while their hearts are filled with unrepentant sin. Here Jesus takes the metaphor and says, you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgent. The people appear holy, but their hearts are full of greed and selfishness. One of the things we need to see here to help cure us of our hypocrisy is that Christianity is more than behavior modification or good manners. Christianity at its center is a transformation of the human heart. And then it is out of that new heart that we live life according to the pattern of Jesus. Can't help but think of Mark chapter 7. This is where Jesus declares all food clean. He uses this idea of eating to help us understand what real transformation looks like. He says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You know, as I read this text, my mind goes to this idea of symptoms versus sickness. You can mitigate and control symptoms and still be sick. You can appear godly in public while still having the sickness of sin in your heart. But what is the cure? To clean the inside of the cup. And what is that? That is repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And from there, we can live a life of righteousness and holiness that the outside also may be clean. I want to say more about this, but let's look. There's a lot of similarities in the next part of our text. Let's go there next. Verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, as I mentioned last week, Matthew 23 has some of the strongest language that Jesus uses of condemnation. And he describes the Pharisees, they're not just a dirty cup, they're a whitewashed tomb, which outwardly appears beautiful, but inward is full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. A pretty tomb is still a tomb. Think of the Taj Mahal. It's one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. But yet, As Encyclopedia Britannica describes it, it is a mausoleum complex, which is another way of just saying it is a place for tombs. That beautiful building, that wonder of the world, is full of death. It looks nice on the outside, but inside there is no life. The beauty of the outside does not change the rot on the inside. And Jesus explicitly applies this analogy to the Pharisees. Look at verse 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These religious leaders appear righteous, but in reality they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And sadly, it is all too common for people, even for many years, to appear like good Christian people only for it to be revealed that they were living in unrepentant sin. And in my experience, that sin will be revealed. You see this in people who they can't hold their secrets in anymore. 
or when kids grow up into adults and they no longer fear the people who swore them to secrecy. The truth comes out. I remember an object lesson a pastor I sat under did. He took an inflated ball and held it underwater. What inevitably happens, what happens if you let up on that downward pressure for just a moment, that ball pops up right to the surface. Sin is the same way. It always comes out. And while the main thrust of this text is to warn you away from such a life, before we continue on, let me appeal to you If you are in that place, repent now. Repent and find forgiveness. I'm going to come back to this later, but throughout, as we read all about this hypocrisy throughout this chapter, the antidote to hypocrisy is repentance and confession. Bring that festering wound into the light and find forgiveness and healing through Jesus Christ. Now what connects the cup and the plate in the tomb is the danger of false appearances. In each instance, they look good on the outside, but inside where it counts, they are not clean. And this is a tempting flavor of hypocrisy. Especially if you've been in the church for a long time, you know, we, we become so good at doing church. And we can become good at faking the Christian life. But in those instances, you don't have a transformed heart. You have behavior modification. You know, I've seen many individuals and families that look like a good Christian family in public. But as a pastor, sometimes I am able to see the brokenness that happens in private. I see this a lot in the context of parenting. Well-behaved and well-dressed children are not automatically a sign of Christian maturity. This is one of the reasons this hypocrisy is so serious is when we have people who live one way in public and one way in private, we're really tempted to make them Christian role models when they shouldn't be. And one of the other reasons is that it's really easy for us to equate strictness with godliness and they are simply not the same. Pursuing godliness does include and involve discipline and some strictness, but godliness is more than that. You can have a family whose kids sit quietly during the service, which is a good thing. But then you might see they're not really serving anywhere in the church or in the community. And that while the kids can sit still for a while, you start to notice, well, they're actually not here very often. Do I want to make them my role model for following Jesus? Orderly households are a good thing, but following Jesus includes that and so much more. One of the reasons this is so tempting is that this type of hypocrisy thrives in isolation and distance. And by that I mean relational distance and isolation which in our larger culture and the nature of our island and with all our technology, it is so easy to be isolated. But when we are isolated, it is easier to hide. 
You're able to keep people at arm's length. You know them, but you don't really know them. You know, that's one of the ways that cults actually work. They isolate you from the outside. They isolate you from interacting with others. And hypocrisy loves isolation and distance. This is one of the reasons we must be committed to community here in our local church. To be known and to know others and to not live in isolation. So that people can see us not just as we present ourselves on Sunday morning, but we actually get to know each other. This church community can help protect you from your own hypocrisy. Don't settle for the appearance of holiness. Live a life of integrity where the heart that was transformed through faith in Jesus lives an outward life of righteousness and holiness. A couple thoughts as we close up. Number one, don't be a hypocrite. How do you not be a hypocrite? You repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ and find salvation. You know, they often joke the difference between a Christian and a hypocrite is at least we admit we're sinners. <laughs> and then out of that transformed heart, live a life of good works and service to Jesus. Secondly, beware a heart that loves technicalities and loopholes. Don't look for what you can get away with, but look for what Jesus is calling you to do. And with that specific issue of making oaths, followers of Jesus tell the truth and keep their promises. Thirdly, follow Jesus in the small details and the big issues of this life. The standard to which we strive is to obey Jesus in all that we do. Don't obey him in the small things and yet neglect the large calls of obedience. Don't neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. Don't strain out the gnat, but swallow the camel. And four, don't have skin-deep obedience or follow those that do. Like a cup only clean on the outside or a whitewashed tomb, don't settle for righteousness that is only the appearance of holiness. And beware the temptation to follow those who only appear to have Christian maturity. Follow Jesus out of a transformed heart. Follow others who truly live out their faith and not just in public. And don't live in isolation from the community of faith and so be a mere pretend follower of Jesus. Repent of your sins. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. And then live according to his word in all that you do. Let's pray. Father God, protect us from the sin of hypocrisy. That we would readily and regularly confess our sin to you and find forgiveness. And that we would serve you of a truly transformed heart 
and that we would not just pretend to be a follower of you, but that we would follow you with everything that we do, from the smallest detail to the greatest calling. God, empower us by your Spirit to live a life of integrity and to follow you in word and in deed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.